Father God, we come before you this morning and we make our confession that you are the sovereign one over all real and true sermon preaching. Um, anybody can prep notes, anybody can preach hard, but only you can pierce hearts and pull people toward you. Uh, Lord God, the unique adventure of how your grace works in us, whether we are the most um, studied of theologians in the room, or whether or not we are a sinner who, and this is our first day setting foot on a church and we couldn't find the book of John if our lives depended on it, you're the Lord over all that, and not a single heart, Lord God, here is exempt from your divine accountability, nor is it exempt from the penetration of your gospel, and none of us, Lord God, have fallen outside of your love. Your word tells us that you have loved the world and done so in a way that you sent your son to die for us. And so we pray, oh God, that something about you would sink down in our hearts regardless of where we are in our walk and we would be changed. We need you in this hour, Lord God, regardless of how many times we've done this before, we need you equally desperately each time, both as the speaker and as the hearer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen and amen. Well, hey, um, as you are kind of getting settled in, if you've got a device, you can go ahead and grab hold of it, turn it over to John chapter 12. You may already know that. If you've got a Bible, go already move your way that way. Um, just kind of as if we get ready to set things up. Carrie, could you raise your hand real quick? Carrie, just put your hand up nice and high. Go ahead. You're making the message longer. Yep. There you go. That's Carrie. That's my wife over there. So as you know, I have a tendency to tell stories throughout my messages. All of them are certified true. And just in case you need to validate any of the uh, anecdotes, you can always just go over to Carrie and ask her, did that really happen? All right. So let's just go ahead and get started. Um, it was August, about the second or third week. We were celebrating our 20th anniversary, and we decided to go on a cruise of the Mediterranean. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. A manage on that, some husbandry uh, going down over there. Um, but uh, so we were, we were on a cruise in the Mediterranean, and one of the nights when we were at sea, something like a, a circus broke out, or like a, some kind of performance on the ship in one of its auditoriums. And so you know the kind of event, like people jumping and diving and twirling and flipping, like hanging from stuff, seemingly like by their teeth, or uh, you know, juggling things, or swallowing flames, or you know, like knives and bowling pins, and people were doing all kinds of acrobatic stunts, stuff that you wouldn't believe. I mean, things that, that, that if, if I just describe them to you and you yourself had never seen a circus or you yourself had never seen this kind of show, you might suggest, well, that's not humanly possible. I mean, amazing feats of balance and flexibility and gymnastic capability. It was awesome. And then out of the back of the show uh, comes this woman, over six feet tall, wearing like these black boots just above the knee with some kind of like half sequent tuxedo type of thing and a hammer tail coat and a top hat. And she's just stepping all provocatively coming out of the back and is moving in my direction. And so I'm like, well, she's not looking at me. This is just kind of like, you know, people who perform on stage, they got to look in the audience even though they can't see anything because the lights are so bright. And then she's just keep coming. And sure enough, she is looking at me. And she gets right over to me and then starts to beckon like this. And I'm like, nah, like, you know, you know I'm celebrating my anniversary. This is my wife. What you talking about? You know, we can't do that. Um, and she just keeps beckoning, and then it gets more aggressive as the people in the show are seeing this go down. People in the audience are seeing this go down, and so the peer pressure is deep now. And so she comes over and grabs my hand, and then, you know, I get pulled onto the stage. Get pulled onto the stage, and then they put me on this, like, four-foot-high kind of platform, just like I'm standing here today. And I'm saying to myself, like, I didn't put on my passport that I was a pastor, so, like, I don't know what skill set they think I'm going to bring to the show. Like, can I pray to close the thing out or 
do I do like one of these, you know, boom, ta-ta, you know, what I do to like magic finger being pulled off? I'm like, what juice could I possibly be? And so um, I'm standing there, and then the, uh, the assistant puts a balloon in my hand. And then they put a balloon in my other hand. And someone comes up in front of me with a whip. They're snapping the whip all over the place. And then decide, whoop-boom, they snap the whip and burst the balloon in my left hand. And then, whoop-boom, and snaps the balloon in my right hand. And I was like, ha-ha, ta-da, I did it. I pulled it off. Let me go back to my seat. No. The assistant brings out three balloons. Right? One in each hand. And now, like, either one under my chin or in my mouth, but somewhere close to my face. I don't remember. But it was like, don't move, don't move. And I'm like, I'm trying, but you're snapping a whip. You know, so sure enough, boom, snaps the, the, the balloon in my right hand or my left hand and pow, snaps the one in this hand and then boom, snaps the one right here in my neck. And I was like, okay, that's over. Not yet. She brings out four balloons, one in each hand and one underneath my neck or in my mouth and one between my knees. And I was like, what's going on here? And they were like, sir, don't move. And I'm like, I'm so trying. I'm so trying not to move, but we got to get this right. I'm not a professional. I'm wearing, I think I was wearing like a Sedine Bible Camp t-shirt. It's so obvious. I don't have like, yeah, I wasn't wearing like sequence or like, you know, any type of leotard. I didn't even get a chance to stretch. What am I doing? <laughs> you know? So, so sure enough, pow, one in my left hand, pow, snaps one in my right hand, pow, snaps one underneath my neck, and then the audience is like leaning in and boom, snaps the one that I'm carrying between my thighs. And I'm like, this is crazy. Finally, I get a chance to sit down. Why do I tell that story? I learned two things that day. The first of which is to never make eye contact at a circus with someone wearing a top hat. <laughs> the second thing that I learned, I think is going to be extremely helpful for us in today's message. And I don't know if it's much as a learning as it is a perspective. You see, um, at this point in John chapter 12, Jesus has worked seven consecutive miracles. The book of John has a total of eight, if you would include the Lord's resurrection from the dead, but the seven consecutive miracles that have been worked have all been increasing in what I would call both magnitude and attitude. Jesus is becoming extremely popular in the region, so much so that John chapter 12 verse 1 says they were six days out from the Passover and that people are starting to move toward the area to worship. There's a set of Greek people that have come in, as you read in the text, but there's also uh, Jesus' fan base. There's a group of people who are coming toward Jerusalem and to participate in the Passover, the Bible says, to see Lazarus, whom the Lord, in his seventh miracle, had raised from the dead. And then also, there were those who were Jesus' opponents who had reached just a fever pitch in their opposition and their angst for the Lord Jesus Christ, and they had officially said, it's now time to kill this guy. Because none of our other public strategies or trying to trick him in his words have worked. There are more people going out to follow Jesus now than there ever were. And so we're at the end of this major miracle campaign, but, but there's something that I want to show you in the scriptures. If we could get up here kind of as a benefit on our, on our screen, I want to walk you through the progression of miracles. Anybody remember the first miracle? Anybody know what that was? Book of John? 
Water to wine. All right, let's go up here. Look at water to wine. When Jesus performed the water to wine miracle, I want you to, I want you to follow this theme. The messages, or excuse me, the miracles are increasing in both magnitude and what I call attitude. Magnitude is in the sense that not that it requires God to turn his power from like 1.5 all the way over to 11. It's equally easy for God, but there are things that are equally difficult for us to understand, or they, they reach deeper into the human experience. So like the first miracle, the Bible tells us that Jesus and his family are at a wedding, and Jesus is merely a guest. And the wedding runs out of wine, and Jesus' mom comes over to him like he's part of the catering staff and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. Does anybody remember Jesus' response? It is not my hour. It's not my time. What a weird response to we're out of wine. <laughs> it's not my time, right? But that's what Jesus says. But then he... he then he turns and tells those who are uh, with him, the, or the servants at the wedding, to, to obviously pour into the water basins, uh, uh, the water, and then they pour it out in its wine. And of course, the, you know, the, the guy who's kind of like the lead you know, uh, coordinator for the wedding goes, man, nobody brings out the good stuff at the end. Who does that? And then kind of we go on into the next chapter of Scripture. I mean, Jesus says a little bit, but the, but the amazement is kind of localized to the people sitting at Jesus' table and maybe a few other people in town. But Jesus doesn't, like, grab the mic at the reception and go, boop, 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 whoop. Anybody who drank the wine, that's my wine, and if you don't drink that, you're going to die. It's not nearly that aggressive. But guess what happens when Jesus feeds the 5,000? It does get that aggressive. He starts saying things like, if you don't, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood, I have no part in you. He starts saying, saying, he starts walking on water. He starts doing things in the lives of people that are more and more difficult to grasp and more and more and dig even deeper into where they are in their lives. Let's look at this next miracle and talk about it for just a second. The second miracle is the healing of the nobleman's son. Now, if you remember this one, a person comes running up to Jesus and says, dear Jesus, come with me to my house because my, my, my son is sick. And Jesus says, go your way. He'll be healed. And Jesus simply sends his word demonstrating that he is Lord over distances. Not more difficult for him, but those who were at the house when the guy got back there and said, hey, at what time was my son healed? He says, hey, about the same hour that Jesus said, your son is healed. And the people, again, a localized group of people in that home believed in Jesus. The next miracle. And number three, Jesus heals an impotent man of over 40 years. Now the magnitude is really starting to get steep because you all remember this one. Jesus walks over a whole bunch of people at the pool of Bethesda, goes over there to this guy who has been pretty much a lifetime as a paralytic, tells him, take up your bed and walk. But not only that, he does so on the Sabbath day. So now, again, miracles are increasing in magnitude, but also in attitude and grittiness because those who don't like Jesus are having to reconcile or wrestle with some of the messages that he's preaching as a part of these messages, a part of these miracles. He continues. Miracle number four, he feeds the 5,000. That's huge. It's a huge miracle. It's a great show of power. But then Jesus takes this group of people who are following him because he's now extremely popular and he meets their needs and he seems to turn on them and go, you're not here because you like me. You're here because you like bread. And then he begins to go into another message, equally as aggressive, with even more teeth and a whole lot more attitude, telling them essentially they're going to die if this is the only bread they've got access to. Number five. Jesus then walks on water, supreme show of, 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 of his own ability, Lord over the seas, Lord over time and space, Lord over every gap and need that exists in our lives. Mess, miracle number six, 
He heals the blind man, but not just a person with, again, cataracts or detached retina, not a guy with some, some, you know, lint in his contact lens, someone who has been blind from birth. And then Jesus takes that miracle and turns it into a message with a whole lot of attitude, essentially letting us know that we are blind also, and he is the light of the world. Messages increasing in both magnitude and attitude. Number seven, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, here's the deal. If you remember in the second miracle when Jesus healed the nobleman's son, when he got word that somebody was sick at a long distance, it was easy for him just to speak and to raise them. But you remember what happened in John chapter 11 when they sent word to Jesus that his friend Lazarus was sick, he intentionally stayed a couple of more days So Lazarus ended up dying when he could have just done what he did in Miracle 2. But Jesus is doing miracles with a little bit more magnitude and a little bit more attitude at this point. He goes there. He tells them to open the tomb. And one of the sisters is talking with him. And Jesus says, yeah, not only will he be raised in the resurrection, in the end, I am the resurrection. I am life. And so Jesus' miracles, as you can see, if you follow the ark, increasing in magnitude and increasing in attitude. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ, as we lead into this pivotal point in John chapter 12, where where, where Jesus is going to say something that we haven't heard him say yet. You see, in John chapter 12, beginning at verse 20, when these two Greek fellows come up to Philip and Andrew and say, tell Jesus we want to see him, Jesus doesn't say what he said at the wedding, my hour has not come. He says, my hour has come that the Son of Man may be glorified. So this is a pivotal place in the scriptures. The miracles outside of his resurrection are complete. Jesus has been over and over again working in ways that are undeniably powerful. But in this undeniable display of power, the messages that come with them have increased not only the, pow- the display of his power, but also the demonstration of accountability or a call to accountability. So why is this ha- what does this have to do with me uh, getting five balloons popped from a whip on a cruise in the Mediterranean? You see, what happened to me that night is that the, the people in the show refused to let me simply appreciate their abilities in the audience but they called me up to participate in the life of what they were doing. This is the same thing that the Lord Jesus Christ has been doing through each one of the miracles, and this is kind of the the overarching theme of of our time together. A meaningful encounter with Christ should cause us to not only appreciate his power, but also to participate in his life. Notice that with each one of the miracles, as the Lord ramped up the magnitude and ramped up the attitude, he began to tighten the screws of personal accountability. How do you see yourselves in light of this? He didn't just let the miracles be some kind of standalone gymnastic theological feat that we could all go ooh and ah. He didn't give us the, the, the opportunity or the, the, the license to just sit in the audience and be wowed. The Lord Jesus Christ and God himself, both then and today, is constantly calling us forward to do more than just be appreciators of his power, but to participate in his life. Now, exactly what does that look like? So I'm going to walk you through kind of three basic ideas that help us frame up what it means to move from just being an audience participant of Jesus's power, but also to be one who is participating in his life, and is this. 
um, how do we move from fans from being just fans to followers? Number one, you can write these down. We're going to unpack them as we, we're going to unpack them all together, but I'll, I'll give them to you uh, at once. To recognize Jesus as deity and not just cultural celebrity. To recognize Jesus as deity and not just cultural celebrity. Number two, we need to realize our world has been gospel wired to remind us of our need for Jesus. And number three, we need to reprioritize eternal life over this life. So if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and join me in them. Back to that original place where we started, and that's John chapter 12, beginning with verse 20. It says, now among those who went up to worship uh, at the feast were some Greeks. Now these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now exactly what does this mean? For God to be glorified, for Jesus to be glorified, means for us to see him in his proper light. Understand that each time you hear preached messages, every time you read Bible passages, or each time you hear awesome worship and you recite the lyrics, that in that moment, you are rehearsing and being exposed to truths about God, hopefully on the worship end, but hopefully here, I know you are, but you are being exposed to truths about God's identity and his ability. This is exactly what each one of the miracles did. So while you may not be seeing miracles every day in your life, if you are reading God's word and you are hearing messages and you are singing worship songs, you are constantly being introduced to truths concerning Christ's identity and his ability. And the question is, what are we doing with that information? You see, to recognize Jesus as deity and not just cultural celebrity means that we put him in his rightful place in our lives, which is top shelf, above all things, Lord of lords, king of kings. You see, at the wedding feast, many of us would love to, I at times would love to just have the Jesus who comes to my wedding and offsets my lack but stays blended in the audience, doesn't do a toast, doesn't call me to accountability, but just is in the crowd prepared to leverage his good old power every time I come to a particular point where I need him or something happens that I don't like in my life. I would love that. But the Lord Jesus Christ refuses to just be a guest in our lives. He desires to be glorified in our lives, which means he must be viewed and related to on the proper pedestal. Jesus has no interest in being a cultural celebrity. One of the reasons I believe that he responds to these Greeks who come to see him in this way is that many of them on the day of Passover, both Jesus' enemies, those others who love him, his fan base rushed the city. And included in that fan base are people who are even outside of the traditional Jewish covenant community. And Jesus, in like fashion, always wants to work through the crowd and vet Who's here for the Savior, and who's here to see the show? You see, we can, even in this day and age, especially in the Bible Belt, especially in Atlanta, treat Jesus like a cultural celebrity. We have the ability through our technology. We have the ability through our social media campaigns. We have the ability to, through all of our strategies to create compelling events that draw crowds and attract people to come and see the what is the great Jesus going to do through that black and white pastor this week? 
We have that ability to be super duper attractive. But being attracted to Jesus isn't the same thing as glorifying Jesus. I mean, we're attracted to things. We look at our social media platforms. What is the height of our attraction there? We see something that one of our celebrities does that we like and enjoy, and we just give it the good old thumbs up. Maybe if we like it really nicely, we'll, we'll decide to follow. But Jesus isn't interested in a fan base. Jesus isn't interested in those who would just celebritize him and say, Jesus is the religion. Jesus is the head of the religion of my choice. That's the jersey that I wear. That's the team that I root for. He's not looking for fans. He is looking for followers. Therefore, he is not looking to be a celebrity, but to be understood and to be known as a savior. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24 put it this way when he's talking to the uh, woman at the well. He says, the hour is coming and now is where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Classic religious phrase, but what does it mean to worship him in spirit and in truth? That is to respond to God, to move toward him, not just because we are attracted to his tricks or attracted to his power or attracted to his church, but to move toward God personally and with some sense of devotion because we understand something about his identity and his ability. What is his identity and his ability? The Lord is spirit. And they that come to him must do so in truth. Come to him on the basis of how he has revealed himself. What is God capable of doing? All of the miracles as they increase in their magnitude are designed not to convince us that our God can multiply bread and convert beverages. The whole point of many of the miracles as they all kind of, you group them together, is to point us to the fact that there is nothing beyond God's capability, no level of life difficulty that he cannot address. And guess what the chief human difficulty is? It is our sin. So all the miracles really fold up into one grand message. There is nothing too hard for God. He sequentially walks us through that idea. He, 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 he categorically walks us through. He, he reaches into various areas of our lives and does something that no one else in the room can do. But it's all pointing in one direction. There's nothing too hard for me. Even that one thing that you won't tell anybody else about, that God and God alone knows exists. So we move toward, we move from the audience into fully participating in this way by recognizing that Jesus is a deity. He has power, not just a cultural celebrity. When we hear great messages, when we hear and read great passages, when we hear great lyrics declaring some truth about God's identity and ability, I want to challenge us to do this. Number one, ask ourselves a question. What is this passage of scripture? What is this message? What is this lyric that I just sang? What is this worship song that have grown to be my favorite? What is it saying about God, who he is and what he can do? And then take another step. Ask yourself, what part of my life has yet to believe that? I like that truth, but I haven't begun to live by that truth. Then ask yourself, what part of my life wants to believe it desperately, and I'm trying to put it to work, but it doesn't seem to be coming out that way. These are areas where we begin to diagnose what's happening to our belief systems. It's not enough to enjoy great worship and to listen to well-put-together messages and to have a favorite church of preference 
because you like the way it all comes together unless we are interacting with all those experiences that way. Lord, what did you just say about yourself and your capabilities, and how is my life responding or not responding to that? And then ultimately, if my life is, as I'm responding to it, who else's life can I export this truth into? So we recognize Jesus as deity and not as a cultural celebrity by doing this, by understanding very simply that being attracted to Christ should result in being changed by him. Being attracted to Christ should result in being changed by him. Ladies and gentlemen, or brothers and sisters, um, I enjoyed the show that night on the cruise ship. It was definitely an attractive exercise. I mean, hey, man, it, it gave me an awesome message illustration, but I wasn't changed by it. I'm not in my basement with a whip, you know, whoop you know, trying to hit b- trick balloons and working on my whip accuracy. I wasn't changed. I was attracted, but I wasn't changed. And what I'm saying to us is we cannot afford to just be attracted to well-put-together churches. We cannot afford to just be attracted to great messages. We cannot afford to be attracted to great worship concerts. If it's really Jesus is doing the drawing, that attraction should be resulting in change. 1st 24 Jesus goes forward after he says that the son of man must be glorified and he gives us this He says truly truly I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies it remains alone but if it dies it bears much fruit We need to realize in the second point that our world has been gospel wired to remind us of our need for Jesus what am I talking about? Let me see if we got my, there we go. So what do I mean by my world that's been gospel-wired? This is an IT engineer, you know, guys, you know, that's a, that's a nightmare, is it not? If you in that space say amen, <laughs> that's a nightmare. But I'll be honest with you, behind the scenes, now us as the end users of whatever technology is being supported there, us as the end user, we as the consumer, we don't see all that mess. But what I want you to see in that image is that our world, just like that, is intricately gospel-wired. What do I mean? So Jesus tells us about a grain of wheat that must drop to the ground, and unless it does so, it'll stay alone. But when it does so, it brings forth much fruit. He is giving us this beautiful illustration of what must happen in his own life. It is his own death, and how his own death, once he gives up his life, will bring forth much fruit, and that is disciples, others of us that would follow him in the resurrection by placing our faith in him. But Jesus is no stranger to giving us these wonderful illustrations in so many other areas of life. I mean, Jesus at one point will talk about, you know, eh, I'm a vine and you're the branches and my, my, my father is the uh, vine dresser. And uh, if you're in me and you uh, don't produce any fruit, you're going to get trellised or propped up or taken out. And if you're in me and you produce fruit, the Father's going to trim you so you can produce more fruit. And herein is my Father glorified that you produce much fruit. And thereby that you prove that you are my disciples. Jesus steps into agriculture. Jesus tells a story at other times, hey, you see this building over here? You know what? I'm going to, you know, in three days, uh, you know, this, this, this thing will be torn down and then I'm building back up in three days. People in the audience thought he was talking about tearing down the temple, but Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. 
Jesus steps into agriculture and gives illustrations of his own life. Jesus would talk about uh, uh, the difference between a mustard seed and, and the great growth that it can produce, or faith like a mustard seed can actually move mountains. Look at that staggering imagery that the Lord Jesus gives us. Over and over again, Jesus likens himself to bread, likens himself to water, likens himself to light. In other words, Jesus has found a way, or either he has changed the game and booby-trapped life, that every single thing in creation somehow points to him and our need for him. Do you see this? So the, the elaborate, lengthy, broad menu of Jesus' messages, yes, it is his wonderful preaching genius, but it also is how the Lord has wired our world so that we would have to literally stumble over the gospel to not see our need for Jesus. It's everywhere. Our world has been gospel wired. Uh, and when we make this awareness, Paul said it this way. He says he is the head of the body, Colossians 2.18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Remember Jesus says, if, I, if, I, if, if like a grain of wheat I go to the ground when I'm raised, it, it produces multi, a multiplicity of fruit. This is Jesus talking about the great birth of disciples that would come out of those who would trust him. But then also in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, he says, But when we see him who is a little lower, or made little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that the grace, by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So this whole idea of a grain falling to the ground isn't just about Jesus trying to put on an individual individual, personal, grand performance. The great growth that comes out of Jesus allowing himself to go down and come back up, that great fruit and growth is those, it's us who would place faith in Christ. The whole world is gospel wired. You see, the other implications of this is this. I'll put it this way. Every gap in my life is gospel-shaped and Jesus-sized. Every gap, every hole, every issue in my life is gospel-shaped and Jesus-sized. This is why Jesus could go from plant to plant, tree to tree, town to town, issue to issue, boat to boat, bread to bread, and he could immediately point to the fact that here's something else that's going on in your life, but you know what? You need me. Oh, you got five husbands? Guess what, baby? You need me. The reason that he's able to do that is because the whole world is gospel-wired. But here's the deal. When I say that everything is either Jesus-sized or Jesus-sized and gospel, gospel-shaped, all the gaps in my life, when you look at your life, the things that give you difficulty are a distinct indicator of how much you need Christ. And they have two strands of intensity happening there at once. Maybe there's magnitude and attitude happening in your life. But every single one of our needs and the reason that they're so diverse and different is because God says, all right, if I have this gospel-shaped issue in this person's life and they hear the gospel, perhaps they will apply. You see, every gap in my life, if it's gospel-shaped, what that means is there's something about the gospel that if I knew and if I believed and if I put to work, it would address that in a glorious and wonderful way in which I would see my need for Jesus. And the holes in our life, the gaps in our lives are not only gospel-shaped, but they're Jesus-sized. In other words, they are of such a significance that only he can address them. Reflecting back to the woman at the well, if you remember her issue, he said, the water that you drink, you're going to have to constantly come back and get refills. That's a message to us. 
whatever you're doing to address the gospel-sized gaps in your life that are all the gospel-shaped gaps that are also Jesus-sized, anything short of Jesus and anything other than the, other than the gospel that you are using to address those issues, you are going to need refills constantly until you bring that thing to Christ. And this is what I mean by our world is gospel wire. Your life is gospel wire. The gaps that you have are designed to bring you to the all-sufficient one who has no gaps, who is interested in showing off his great power in your life. So recognize that Jesus is a deity and not a cultural celebrity. We need to realize that our world has been gospel wired to constantly remind us of our need for Jesus. Everything that you look at in your life, whether it's a resource issue, you don't have enough, whether it's a relationship issue, whether something is going awry, or whether it's a rest issue, something is happening in your body that is robbing you of complete peace. The Lord just kind of buckets the things that rob human beings of, of, of their ability, of, of, rob them of their wholeness. Relationships, resources, and rest. I can do that. Come on, bring me your birds. Let me carry that. Constantly. So, without Christ, we'll always need a refill of something. But Jesus goes further in his response. In verses 25 and 26, he says this, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Third and final point is this. I need to reprioritize eternal life over this life. Take a look at the image behind me. This is us, right? Our, our lives consist of a constant act of juggling. In this life, we believe that this is what it looks like to be an adult, is to constantly keep in the air all the things I'm responsible for. Uh, my, my job, my hobbies, my shopping, my interest, my cash, my car, uh, just all those things. This is what we think life is. We think that this is adulting. It's just constantly juggling various responsibilities. And if I stop juggling, everything starts to crash. Well, that allows you to be the center of the universe and the provider of your own strength and power. But the Lord Jesus Christ is calling us not to be greater jugglers, but to understand just what it looks like for him to be Lord over each one of these categories we're trying to juggle. He's calling us to stop juggling and to trust him fully. What does it look like for Jesus to be Lord over this unruly child, this fragile marriage, this low self-esteem, this unruly boss, this broken checkbook? What does it look like for Jesus to be Lord over each one of those? That is the call. That's why the world is gospel-wired, and that's why juggling makes you so tired. You were never meant to be a juggler. You were meant to trust Christ whatever is being thrown at you in life. And you feel like you operate under this lie that you can't drop it, you can't let go. Now, I'm not asking anybody to just go out here and start quitting jobs and leaving kids at daycare and bouncing house notes. That is not what this is. You got to tell them today, Ryan, because they'll go out here and they'll put it on Facebook. My pastor said, <laughs> stop juggling my checkbook. Busted laptops all over corporate America. He said, drop it. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. But I do believe we should take each one of them and see how the Lord Jesus wants to be Lord over that. 
So one of the things that we do culturally when we make Jesus a celebrity is we keep him also in his space. We don't, we, we don't invite him here. Again, follow me very carefully. 168 hours in a week, we get about one and a half together depending on what team you serve on. Maybe 35 minutes if you came in late out of your week. If this is the highest, the grandest, the most, and the apex of your relationship and you're coming to Christ, that's bad. This cannot be the highest, best, most, and grandest exercise of your Christian faith and you're moving toward God. You got 168 other hours you got something to do with, and he wants to be Lord of those also. This is why we are so juggling, and this is why we need to reprioritize eternal life over this life. I love how Jesus invites us into always these seemingly extremes. The first thing he invites us into is a love-hate relationship between this world and eternal life. Uh, John, 1 John chapter 2 says these words, helps us to unpack what it means to love-hate uh, that world versus this one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in this world and the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. But the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the Lord Jesus presses into, and also John, in his second letter here, is pressing into this love-hate relationship between our current priorities and our eternal priorities by saying that if we love the Lord more, it puts all the other things that we feel like we need to manage in their appropriate perspective. And some of them may need to be dropped once we fully fall in love with the Father. Others may need to just be reprioritized. But the ultimate reprioritization is, Lord, help me, show me how to move towards you, not just in being attracted, but to ever fall in love again and again and again so that my life is being reprioritized. And that falling in love is not going to happen in a single second. Just like many of you who have been married more than five weeks, Know that the, um, the initial confession is not the final step in your loving that person on the other side of the promise. So much so is our relationship with the Lord. We must constantly move into falling in love with him and loving him more. <coughs> Excuse me. The Bible also invites us into an appreciation of not only the love-hate relationship, but it also says that there'll be those who gain and lose. Philippians chapter 3, verses, uh, verse 8, Paul said this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul talks about the process of his life, not only falling more in love with Jesus, but also constantly reevaluating the things that he may have prioritized previously over that relationship. Why? That he might ultimately gain Christ, that he might become more like him, become more conformable to his death, that the gospel-shaped gaps in his lives are constantly being filled in with more and more gospel truth, and that the the, the, and the size of Christ is being more, and God, and Christ is being more magnified in his life. This is the invite. And Jesus says this finally, in that same passage, in, in, in John 12, chapter 12, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, he will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here it is. When it comes to the serve me, follow me dynamic, we need to know this, that to be a disciple of Jesus is to know him as Savior and to model his behavior. 
if I am moving toward the Christ, if I am loving him, if I am, if I am prioritizing eternal life, I am not just resting in the fact that, yes, he's my savior. Yes, I'm resting in the fact that my salvation is eternal. But I recognize that I want to become more like him, not just in the moral registry of do this and don't do that, but the things that I pursue and aspire for. Jesus, transform me. Move me toward you that I will become more like you. This should be one of the most principal of all of our prayers. You realize how many of your personal bucket and grocery list that you could set aside if your, if your chief prayer would be, Lord, make me more like you? So, I say this to us. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, greatest showman. This is the title of today's message, The Greatest Showman. Anybody saw the movie, The Greatest Showman? The Greatest Showman? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw it three times, unintentionally. My daughter loves it. Um, I just happened to be in the room. Um, but one of the gospel themes, because the world is just gospel-wired, one of the gospel themes that I saw in The Greatest Showman was this. Here's a guy who stands up a tent and puts together on display for his own glory the most grand congregation of misfits you've ever seen in your life. A group of people whose lives were marked by all manner of insufficiency, inability, grossness, and deformity. Things that the world would never accept. And he brought them together under this one place and under this one theme where he, the showman, was getting glory. Now, I don't think he did it nearly as well as Jesus Christ can. And if you don't feel like a misfit today, I, saw, I didn't mean to, to, to insult you, but here's the deal. Jesus Christ wants us to look at our life and recognize that all those things that seemingly undo us, the things that, 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 that we would never want anyone else to know, the things that we hope that no one else sees, the things that we seem are most unseemly about ourselves, the things that we hope that God would get addressed before, we ever, but before it ever became public. It is that stuff that the Lord wants to gather together so that as he transforms each of us and makes us look like him, the world will go, whoa. Not just look at the great show of God's transforming power, but how do I get in on that? Where is my four-foot platform? Bring me on stage, Jesus. Transform me. Let me be a part of that. Jesus Christ is the greatest showman because there is no difficulty, there is no, there's nothing going on in our lives that we can't bring to him and he can't transform. And he gets the glory. It is now the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. So my appeal to you is this. As we look over our lives, we may be asking ourselves, Man, I wonder where do I sit? Am I, am I in the audience? Well, technically and logistically, yes, you are right now. But spiritually speaking, here's the question. Is this the highest expression of your commitment to Christ? The last 35, I'm probably hitting 50 minutes of, of sitting still. Is this it? Is this the apex? Ask that, ask yourself. Is your, is your adventure, is your desire, is your, you're, you're coming to this church because it's cooler than your last one? Are you here because you want to see Jesus or because you want to see the great cracking of the biblical whip 
and hope that we do something awesome that you haven't seen anywhere else. We welcome you under any impulse, but I hope that as you come toward Christ, that your ambitions and your desires and your appetites and desires will be transformed so that we are all collectively together becoming more like him. Let's pray together. Father God, we come begging you to press deeply this message into our lives and show us ourselves. Each one of us, Lord God, brings a gospel gap today. It could be something that we've had for a very long time. Others of us may have been just something that developed in the, in the last few days or weeks or years of our lives, but we all have a gospel gap, a gospel gap, something that is shaped like an issue that only you can address. Lord God, we bring that to you. Some of us, Heavenly Father, we have a God-sized issue in our life, a Jesus-sized issue that only you and your supremacy and your potency and all sufficiency can address. Lord God, we bring it to you. Lord God, there's stuff going on in us that we can't even put a name to. We don't know what it is, but we know we need more of you, that where we are is not enough. We know we need to come closer. We ask you, Lord God, to meet us in that space. Fill in the blanks as only you can. Speak to us with clarity, Lord God, that we would move towards you. This we ask in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ.